On today's show, our guest is Dan Lowry. Dan is a fellow paratrooper, podcaster, and entrepreneur. He's the owner of the super successful GTT Performance Center in Hobart. He owns and operates this successful business with his wife, Alana, and together they have an incredible amount of experience and a highly refined skill set. Their gym plugs a gap in the market and brings together the very best in premium equipment and is coupled with the very best in group and personal training for their members, all for a reasonable cost. It's a model that you would not have seen before, and hence the reason for their strong growth and their success. Dan began his military career as an infantry soldier and paratrooper, and then moved up through the ranks and on to become a fully qualified Army Physical Training Instructor, or PTI. His passion for learning Training and personal development is infectious, and I know that you're going to love his old school approach to life and fitness. I'm excited he's here, so please help me in welcoming Dan Lowry. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass, and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache, and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Dan. It's great to have you here, mate, and I'm really excited that I've got a fellow paratrooper on the show, mate. Welcome. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. All right, I'd like to start off with all of my guests with a quick get-to-know-you quiz. It helps us calm the nerves a little bit. It warms us up in a rapid-fire way, and maybe your friends and family listening will learn something about you that they don't already know. You ready? Sure. All right, man, just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. No particular order, just random stuff. Cardio or weights? Both. But, come on, man, you can't play both sides. <laughs> You've got to pick. Wait. Oh, mate, you got it. You can't sit on the fence, am I? Right, no weights, fence. weights above all else. All right, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Your girlfriend and and women can't see your cardio results, can they? Well, I've got a wife, so my wife can't see that. But but yeah, I get. I know what you're getting at. <laughs> early to rise or late to bed? Uh, early to rise. Coaching yeah. or mentoring? Coaching. Do you prefer writing or public speaking? Public speaking. Do you like to train elite athletes or just regular people? Ooh, that's a good question. I do both. I probably enjoy more training regular people because it, it tests your skill set on a whole nother level. Elite athletes have an expectation that they're going to do what you tell them to do, right? Well, they'll be successful in spite of what you do. You know, they're, they're usually freaks, so they're easy work, actually. And what about group training versus one-on-one, which you prefer there? Mate, group group training is where it's at. It's it's so much more effective, and um, yeah, I think I think there should be more of it. People hit their goals better in a group training session, right? Oh, the, the energy, you know, the intensity you can bring, and, and that infectious, I suppose, energy that comes with the group and working out with other people, it's fantastic. Awesome, awesome. Is it harder as an army physical trainer or as a civvy one? Much harder as a civvy one. I mean, one of the things I always talk to people about is um, when I was an army trainer, people didn't have a choice. They, they had to do what we put in front of them. They had to do what we say. And one of the things I learned very quickly when I left the army and left that environment and I started training doctors, lawyers and regular folk was it, it was a lot more than just kicking ass and, you know, 
telling them what to do. I, I had to help them. I had to help them find a way to do things because they wanted, not because I was saying. So you have to become far more persuasive in your arguments. You have to become better at, at, at planting the subconscious seed and helping people come to their own deductions. Well, I often wonder why the military doesn't teach us to do that when we're on courses doing instruction, because it's still effective. You can still tell people what to do and give them orders and do that, but they don't yeah. teach you that civvy stuff. And it's a bit of a shame we don't learn that. All right, mate, would you rather be managing people and staff? Or would you rather be working directly with clients? Hmm. Probably at this point, I've, I've got to a point where I want to be managing people and staff. One of the continual battles I have in my business is, is getting drawn back into training clients and, and training groups. But I constantly have to remind myself that the greatest impact and, and the better leverage I get is through training staff to train more people. So definitely, definitely training staff. Nice one, nice one. Last one. It's a really important one, man. Are you old school or new age? Oh, look, my natural predisposition is to be old school, but I acknowledge to be my most effective self. I have to do a little bit of new age stuff as well. It's an interesting like paradox. It's a dichotomy there because old school is all about attitude and new age. You have to use the latest techniques, the latest technology and all of that sort of stuff, isn't it? So you kind of, you do have to play both sides there. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, from a training perspective, yeah, I'm overwhelmingly old school in what I do. There's a lot of fluff in the fitness industry and a lot of stuff that, that comes in purely purely from, a, I suppose, a capitalist point of view of ha- having to create new products. But what really works best is the old stuff, the, the tried and tested stuff. Yeah, there's new spins on it, but there's nothing new coming up about exercise. Everything we knew in the 50s and 60s stands true today. I suppose where my my new age predispositions come from, I suppose, is more with coaching style and communication style. But when it comes to training, it's more about old school. Nice one, mate. Well, thank you for sharing all of that with us and letting us get to know you a little bit more like that. Will people come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in? So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest all-in story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? Well, yeah, look, I, I suppose a big part of my story is, ju- is just understanding the conditioned thinking that, that happens through school. So I, I was a terrible student at school and my mother was a teacher and, and I grew up thinking I was stupid because I hadn't got good marks in school. And it wasn't until I joined the army when I was 18 and I had a practical framework for applying things that I was learning that I started to realise, actually, I, I do have an ability to learn and I do have an ability to be good at stuff other than sports, I was always quite good at sport. And just gradually over my first probably two years in the army, I started to develop this self-belief around what I could actually achieve. And that really shaped me, I suppose, from about the age of 20 onwards to, to have the confidence to go all in. And there was a few things that I achieved in the military that really gave me that sense, you know what, if there's something I want to do here, I can do it. And it's just having that bloody-mindedness to, to everything into it and be absolutely immersed in what I was doing and then just really model, you know, if I wanted to get from A to B, find somebody who's done it, see what they did, see what they were good at, see what routines and habits they had and then try to do the same thing. And it, and it really uh, stood the test of time for me and it's helped me achieve far more in my life than whatever I thought I, I probably would as a, as a school-age student, that's for sure. 
you've done probably one of the hardest things that you could do in the Australian Defence Force, and that's become a physical training instructor. Can you tell us a little bit about that course? And was that the hard, was that your all-in moment in the military when you decided to pull the trigger on that and go for that? Yeah, that, that was probably the big one. Before that, I'd had a similar success in that after only 18 months in the battalion, I'd, I'd got into recon platoon. And so that was hard in itself. I mean, that was probably weighed a little bit more on my favourite time in that it was very physical. It was essentially who was the fittest, who was the most robust. And over a six-week six course, you know, if you did well in all your field craft, stuff I was already trained in, you, you ended up getting sent down to recon platoon, which I was lucky enough to achieve. But along the way... And in my three years in recon platoon, I, I really worked out that I didn't want to be in the infantry. I didn't want to go any further with it. I didn't want to hang around. You know, I was sick of my life passing me by while I sat out field. So I sort of looked around. And I thought, what what am I really good at? What do I really love? And it was always more the fitness side of things. I was more into that than I was into field craft and going out bush and doing all that stuff. So I thought, all right, I'm going to try and get into to PT. And that, that was a road which was a long road when you're starting out. For anyone who's, who's been in the Army who may be listening, they'll, they'll know what I'm talking about. But it was essentially you had to do first what was called a combat fitness leaders course. And that course primarily was to qualify you to run PT within your unit or your, your subunit. Uh, it was a six-week course. And if you did well enough on that course, you might get recommended for further training as a, as a physical training instructor full-time. Now, to give you an idea of, of the obstacles that you had to overcome to do that, you were assessed across three areas on that course. You were assessed on your fitness, uh, your class-taking, and your academic skills. And you had to score 90% or above on every single area. Now, that 90% or above, that meant a certain standard in your fitness testing both at the start and end of the course. It meant every class you took on course that you're assessed on, you had to score above 90%. And every academic test you did, you had to score above 90%. Now, I managed to achieve that. And over the six weeks that that course went, I literally spent every waking hour going all in on, on doing stuff that was going to help me achieve that result. I was doing extra training to make sure that I, I passed, not only passed, but blitz the fitness testing side of it. I was doing rehearsals in my backyard on how to take classes. You know, I was taking these imaginary classes in my backyard. I was spending the weekend studying and, and doing extra stuff, doing extra reading uh, on stuff that I thought may come, come up in the exams that we did. And I wanted to make sure that no matter what happened, I had some buffer and I got that 90% and above the whole way. As it turns out, at the end of the six weeks, I, I ranked second highest on the course. One of the other guys was like 0.2% above me. I think my pass average for the course was 92 point something percent and I was then recommended to go into further training at the Australian Defence Force PT school to become a full-time PTI so of the I think it was nearly 40 people that started that course to finish second top was something which gave me a lot of self-belief especially after week one I looked around and there was probably 10 other people who I, I sort of really tough competition so, yeah, that was, that was a big moment for me in my career and, and just giving me that sense of belief that whatever I wanted to do, if I applied myself, I could do it. Well, well you, you raised something that I've kind of actually forgotten about because I did that same course in the Army as well. And I remember being recommended to go and be a PDI, but thinking that 
I didn't have what it took with the fitness component. So I just, just barely scraped in. And for me to go next level, I was really, really going to have to go all in. And it was interesting for me in my career because it, made, it shined a, a spotlight on my weakness, which was my fitness. And if I really wanted to level up into something different in a different type of career path, I was really going to have to commit to it. And in my heart of hearts, I just kind of wasn't there as well. It's like, you know, you, you discovered that in your heart of hearts, being in the infantry is not what you wanted to do. You want to move on from it like that. I think the military has a, a wonderful way of bringing people together like that and helping you compare yourself to other people and then helping you to level up into the next part, next progression of your career. Tell me, what was it like when you finally arrived at the PDI school on day one? That must have been the start of all the hard work. It's hard work to get there, never mind actually getting there and now, man, all that pressure. What did that feel like? Yeah, that, that was a bit of a culture shock, you know, going from being an infantry soldier to being at Defence Force PT school, which was a tri-service establishment at HMAS Cerberus. And there was... In the Navy. Yeah, I think there was 22 people on our course, nine of which were Army, six of which were infantry. So the first six weeks of that seven-month course was spent essentially redoing what we'd already done in our Combat Fitness Leaders course. It was so the Navy and the, the Air Force could attempt to catch up, not that they ever do. And then, um, <laughs> look, we then had, you know, five and a half months of, of, of just learning the job, really. To be honest, that, that wasn't difficult at all. The, the tri-service nature of that course meant that the Army instructors on that course were, were very knowledgeable, very professional. But for me, there was a real sense of mediocrity with the, the standard of the Navy and the Air Force instructors. Being only 23 at the time, my attitude towards it was probably a bit immature and, and I was one of a couple of guys who probably mucked around too much for that six months but um <laughs> once i get it got out in the real world after that so i went to the school of infantry as an instructor straight after that it, it, it was serious business again but um yeah that six months work was not one of the most challenging points of my career but it was good it was a good transition into a new career nice one how, how do you compare the military level of training versus the civilian level of training in from a professional perspective developing you into a pt they're, they're chalk and cheese right yeah, so look, it's what I learned there and what the most important skills I learned as an Army PTI were the art of taking group strength and conditioning. And that's something which the Australian Army physical training instructors do better than anyone else I've seen, the ability to communicate, to organise and to get people to achieve a training objective in a short amount of time with minimum equipment in large groups is second to none. So those skills and qualities that, that I got from that were invaluable and have served me very well professionally and, and in my business. As far as the actual training knowledge goes, look, a lot of old school stuff that's really, really useful, but it was probably outdated quite a bit of it and the application was a little bit outdated. So, yeah, look, I, I've probably learned more about training since, well, definitely learned more about training since leaving the Army, but, you know, you put the two together and it all adds up, that's for sure. Nice one, nice one. What, what did you learn about yourself in an environment and training people, particularly at like a training establishment like the School of Infantry, where there's an attrition rate? There's, you know, I've been involved in things before in courses where people struggle with it. You know, you're, you're two, three days in and people wash out of courses and you're kind of like, oh, well, you know, I'm, that's not happening to me. What did you learn about yourself where there was a high failure rate in these, in these places? 
yeah, look, the thing it thing it taught me most, and I, and I probably didn't fully grasp it at the time, but I, I get it now, is the most important quality you can cultivate and develop for your success is resilience. And look, I, I've seen that across a number of a number of areas. One of the things that happened on the combat fitness leaders course was the infantry guys were far more resilient than anyone else on the course. And part of that is, you know, as you know, when you're a soldier, there's this this culture of banter. You give each other a lot of shit, all right? And that's grounded in an age-old practice where men in dangerous jobs will test each other's resilience with banter and giving each other a lot of stick. So the infantry guys had a lot more resilience going on to that course and they did a lot better. It was something then that, that sort of permeated through everything I did, either as an instructor or a participant. The ones who are most likely to succeed and do well were not often the smartest, the fittest, or the most talented. They were the most resilient and the most consistent. Nice. Tell me about teamwork in adverse situations when you have to pull together to make things happen. Look, that largely comes down. I mean, I've been in situations where that hasn't happened and I've been in situations where it has. And that's where the the strength of leadership really comes into play. I can think of a few situations off the top of my head where I've been in, in groups, especially in the infantry, where the, the patrol commander or the section commander or whoever it may have been was not a strong leader and then had very strong personalities within the group. But I think the leadership in those scenarios sets the tone and is the most important thing off the bat for the, for the success of the group. And have you found that that's translated into your business, into the civilian world i mean group coaching is a really great example of teamwork in a fun environment not a nasty military cranky environment but in a super fun environment when people all get together and encourage each other how is that experience translated for you yeah definitely and that comes back to that leadership thing again so one of the things that constantly comes up for me in any organization i've been in is is the most uh is the strongest leader sets the tone for the whole culture and sometimes the strongest leader can be somebody who's actually setting the tone in a really dysfunctional way. The leadership style I use is very much based off some of the really good leaders that I remember. So I actually remember one of my company sergeant majors. You may remember this guy, and I've never heard of him or heard from him since, since leaving the armies. His name was Shane Moyle. So he was the uh, CSM of support company. And I'll never forget the style of leadership he used. It was, and it was just calm to the point but you just knew you did not want to be in trouble with this guy all right so he set a really high standard across every area that he covered he was a you know he was an older guy he was strong he was fit calm but just commanded authority and that's the same sort of leadership style i try to use with my staff it's it's being objective having clear expectations it's then empowering people giving them the autonomy to go and do that and then doing the same thing with customs and clients you know setting expectations from the start, you know, helping them understand that we actually can't do anything for them except show them the road, give them the tools to succeed and then support them and hold them accountable to taking those steps along the way. That permeates down through any organisation from the strongest leader. So one of the things I have to do is, is constantly take responsibility for, all right, acknowledging I have to be the strongest leader in this group. If I've got somebody in my staff who thinks that they want to assert their dominance as the strongest leader, I've got to recognise that, stamp that out, maintain that strong leadership position 
and then set the expectations of staff, set the expectations of customers and make sure that the overall culture and that standard or that attitude of excellence is being executed at all times. I think one of the really fantastic things that the military gives us, and thank you for sharing that, by the way, that's a really, really frank insight to the things that we get as ex-serving members is you get a really, you get a, a nice tapestry of people is what I call it. You see good leadership, you see bad leadership. And then when you get out into the civilian world, you've been exposed to so many different types that it helps you to develop your style. I want to be more like this guy and I'll take that trait and this trait and those types of things as well. One of the things that people ask me all the time about the military and when I cast my mind back to it, they talk about discipline all the time. You know, you must be really disciplined in the military. It's really hard. It's discipline like that. And I'm, I kind of just shrug my shoulders and, well, it's just a job you've got to turn up to every day. And there's rules. You just follow rules. And that's kind of where the discipline ends. But there is an element of personal discipline required, particularly if you want to progress. And particularly in a role like the infantry or especially like a PDI, you have to maintain strong personal discipline for your fitness, for your knowledge and your delivery to your customers when you're actually producing the role what would you say about discipline and how what you learned in the military translated across into your personal life and into your business yeah look that's an amazing point people people seem to think that discipline is something that's only that only happens in the military and it sometimes escapes or or that it's some sort of magical power that gets out but it, it's <laughs> it's really far more prevalent than that so we have a program that we, we run at our gym called the 8 and 6 Challenge. And it's essentially a six-week program where if somebody loses eight kilos within their first six weeks, they get a refund on what they've paid for their initial six weeks. So we're, we're monetizing performance and helping people stay accountable to their training and their wallet. And I had a guy this morning who, who achieved his eight kilos of weight loss and he's uh, a pastor or a priest or, or whatever they call themselves in the in the church and um, awesome dude, Samoan guy, played a lot of rugby, played a lot of sport and now he's really uh, in that spiritual realm and helping his community there. And he said to me, he goes, look, what, what you're doing in your gym, it's just great. It's like nothing I've seen before. He goes, there's so much stuff I see you do here that, that I could be doing with my community. And the success that you want, regardless of if it's in business, if it's in fitness, if it's in your family life or whatever it is, it's built on small daily disciplines. And I say this to my customers, I say it to my trainers, you know, wherever there is not discipline and wherever there is not routine, there's going to be chaos. And the less routine and discipline you have, the more chaos you're going to have. Look, I'm, I'm not somebody who has a natural disposition for organisation, but one of the things I've learned is that the more I focus on being organised and the more I focus on routine, the better everything else goes. So that starts from, you know, what I do first thing in the morning. I get up and I have a morning routine I do. From there, I sit down and I, I write down my goals. I write my goals down every day. So goals for every area of my life, from my business, to my marriage, to my family life, to my own health and fitness and just other things that I want to achieve. And then I write down what my schedule is for the day with time blocks next to each thing that I'm doing. And what this does, it, it gives you a great sense of direction it gives you momentum so that you go from one task to another to another with an absolute minimum of time lost on having to think, okay, what is it I need to do today? And you you go from having this sort of this busy, anxious chaos where you, you 
feel busy and you've got this anxiety around everything you've got to do, but you're not quite sure what it is you've got to do to being very focused, very linear, very organised and getting everything done well, well short of what would be a standard eight-hour day. So those, those disciplines that people are talking about, I actually think it's more of an organisation. It's just an organisational skill and that's something you can train to be very good at very quickly. I think um, you're spot on there. It's all, it all becomes down, it comes down to the individual. And I think people not in the military that ask that question, you know, it must be so disciplined. I think they have a memory of their mum or dad disciplining them when they were little and they were in trouble. And maybe that's how they think it is for us. And in some circumstances, I guess it is a little bit like that. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to you, the way you help yourself and the way you use your own personal discipline to achieve your goals. Tell me, I just want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about the 3RAR experience, the airborne experience. Tell me, with the passage of time, what do you remember about static line parachuting? Yeah, look. Fond or not? Mate, by the end of it, very fond. Yeah, by, I mean, I, I still remember my first jump and I remember jumping out of that, that plane for the first time. More so than jumping out of the plane myself, I remember watching one of my mates, Glenn McGovern, standing at the door because he was first out. And I remember the, the door opening, the air rushing in and seeing him stand on the edge. And, and you know, you're not that high. It's a 1,000 feet. And I could actually see things passing by the ground. And my <laughs> legs went weak. They went jelly. But after probably 15 jumps, I, I could go up on the plane, go to sleep on the way up. My heart rate wouldn't get above about 80 and, and jump out no problem. So, look, mate, the feelings, are, the memories are fine. I never seriously hurt myself jumping. Mm-hmm. Had a few bumps and bruises. But... Yeah, I, I missed the adventure of it all, that's for sure. Yeah. Did you get um, Rapsol qualified in Recon Platoon? Yeah, I did quite a few Rapsol jumps. I'm thinking maybe 40 to 50 Rapsol jumps, which was amazing. Amazing. And for those folks that are listening that don't know what Rapsol is, Rapsol is a ram air static line parachute. So you're jumping out with a static line still, but a round parachute. It's a square one that you can actually fly. And Recon Platoon used that to get into a target covertly. And it's a hell of a lot of fun getting out of an aeroplane at eight or 9,000 feet with a static line and flying a very, very long way. I was lucky to be posted to the parachute school uh, as the last posting in my career and got all my free fall quals, my rapsal quals, all that sort of stuff as well. And I remember rapsal being one of the funnest things to do, flying that big giant parachute with a team of people doing it at nighttime. That was good fun. Amazing, amazing. I actually had a, a harrowing rapsal experience once we were doing an exercise up in Shoalwater Bay. And we had two recon patrols jumping in from, I think, 12,000 feet out of one of the U.S. Uh, Special Forces planes they had. And I was last man out. And it was really, really thick fog. And, and I was last man out. And, and I jumped out. And the fog was so thick, I couldn't, couldn't <laughs> see uh, a foot in front of my face. So the, the protocol was to go to half breaks and just ride it out until you came out of that fog. And I was watching my altimeter and I got to about 4,000 feet when I finally came through that fog and I was out over the ocean at night time. <laughs> so I had to turn hard and, and really gun it for land, but I just made it onto the land and I was, I think I was about 13 kilometres from the RV. Oh, uh, from the drop zone and then it took me quite a time to actually RV with the rest of the platoon. They all thought I was dead, but, you know, these are the sorts of things that happen when you're playing that game. It's a very dangerous profession, that's for sure. And uh, if you can't see what you're doing, that can end up really badly and go sideways on you quickly. I know I saw a lot of guys get really good at parachuting and do things 
really radical near the ground. And I was always very conservative. Like, man, you only kind of get one chance to make that mistake. Just kind of dial it back and take it easy. So I've always been really conservative when it comes to that. Did you continue parachuting after you got out of the military? No, not at all. I think the last jump I did was maybe 04. 04, 05, I might have done one to stay current when I was a PTI, but I, I was out of the army pretty quickly after going to the world of PT. It just wasn't for me. I'd had enough of that world and needed to spread my wings a bit. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a long time. Any desire to go do some free fall? Uh, I don't know, mate. Look, I, I do believe in doing things that, that get you uncomfortable. So, I don't know, maybe one day. Maybe one day. I've got other things that, that keep me uncomfortable at the moment. So, <laughs> Nice one. Do you miss the military? I miss the camaraderie of it. Yeah. I, look, one of my real driving needs is for growth. And I found it really frustrating being in a, a framework where high performance didn't come with more money, to be honest. And one of the really liberating things for me about having my own business is if I'm in a situation where, you know, I want to buy a house or, or do something and, and I'm not quite there, it, it's fully on me to, yeah. to make that happen. I couldn't think of anything more stifling than, than having limited earnings, to be honest. So, yeah, I'm grateful for the experience. I'm grateful for the qualities that are brought out of me and grateful for the friends I made, but I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to go back there. Love it. That's a nice way that you've transitioned from it. And the military, I, I totally agree with you. It doesn't matter how hard you work or how little you work, you still get paid the same. And if you're trying to achieve something bigger or better, that is one really big drawback of it. I would totally agree with you. Now, you, you picked up your life from Sydney. You moved back to Tasmania, where you're from, and you started your business in Hobart. Man, that's an all-in proposition by itself. Tell me about your gym and your business. Yeah, so I left the army in 2006. I worked in the fitness industry in Sydney up until 2013. So I did some time as a PT with my own business. I had had a few other things going on. So I had a business also training other trainers, running courses, educating them, and also did some stints in management with Fitness First as well. So that six years after I left the army really for me was about learning as much as I could about the fitness industry and about the business side of it. And I always had that, that view of wanting my own gym. Now, from a, an achievement point of view, you know, I've gone from being a soldier to then being in that world. And, and one of the things which we, I, I got caught up on a lot was, all right, I want my own gym, but how do I do it? And I always had my dad's, my dad's voice going around the back of my head. He was an accountant and a very cynical man, great guy, but very cynical. And I, I just remember him growing up. He was always talking about how bad the economy is and how hard business is and all these things. So I always had that, that narrative going on subconsciously and it probably held me back for a little bit. But if you're going to blame, you've got to thank people for things too. The other thing it made me do was be very deliberate. And so probably about 2010, I, I started investing in training and courses on marketing and, and running a fitness business. And I did some really good stuff and I did some other courses that weren't so great. But everything I did helped me to start to put together this model in my mind of, of how I would do it and how I would go about it. So in 2013, my wife and I, we moved to Hobart. We both walked away from, from really good consulting businesses. You know, we we're both doing well and had great clients and, and, and really had, I suppose, a, a legacy there that would have served us really well for as long as we wanted. And we walked away from that because 
we decided that we'd like to try something different apart from Sydney. So we moved to Hobart, which is where I'd grown up and been away from for 15 years by that stage. So we moved down here and started our gym, GTT. And really it was just about putting in place everything we already knew about training and working with clients, but in a new model. And the new model was essentially we wanted to get out of doing one-on-one. We wanted to build groups because for so many people, group training is just such a better option. So we developed a group strength and conditioning model. I suppose for use of a better term, CrossFit-ish, you know, in that we had a workout of the day, but different programming, but essentially the same stuff, getting people lifting, working hard and getting their heart rate up. We initially subleased a space off a friend of mine. We did that for, I think, six months while we built the business up to a certain point. We just ran morning classes at that point. And then we moved into our first location after that. We were there for three and a bit years. It was purely group training. That's all we did. And then the big dream, though, was always to have a facility, a full performance center. So we spent three and a bit years there building our business, building cash, building our financial position so that we could then go and do something far more significant. And we did that. We moved about a year ago into a 500-square-meter space. We've got our our group training as one product within that. And then we've got an amazing gym fit out. We've got all the best equipment. So we've got all our machines from Atlantis and Watson. All our plates and bars are from Alico. It's essentially the the Bentley of gym equipment or the Porsche of gym equipment. You know, we've gone gone all in and bought all the best stuff. And so now our, our service covers that that general gym access. We get a lot of very savvy trainees, powerlifters, bodybuilders, crossfitters. We get people who do the groups, and we've also got eight trainers who work here running PT. So that's been the journey so far. Certainly, some more we'd like to achieve with it but really it was about redesigning the gym model in an image that that we thought was lacking you've got within the gym industry obviously a lot of different models you've got the big box fitness first good life sort of thing you've got the crossfit thing and you've got other iterations of the micro gyms the owner operator stuff but we wanted to do something which we felt hadn't been done well and that's a really nice high level gym, high-level fit-out, beautiful equipment with great training products and a great culture. So we're really happy and and well and truly on track with with what our vision was. Well done, mate. That's a huge achievement and a a long-term goal that's come to fruition. Does it feel good when you describe it like that to me? I can see the look on your face. The listeners can't see that, but I can see it. I can tell you're saying it fondly like you've achieved it. Does it feel good? Yeah, man. It's amazing. And it's really important to remind yourself that's what you wanted to do. I mean, when I was running a PT business, uh, working on the floor of Fitness First, that, that was great. You know, I, I had great clients and made good money doing that. And that was rewarding in a sense. But the dream, like, you know, back then I was like, man, I'd love to have my own gym. And there's a lot I don't like about what I'm doing, I was doing then that, you know, if I could have seen then where I'd be now, I would have been blown away. And it's very, I think one of the dangers is, is you lose sight of that. Mm-hmm. You've got to remind yourself, hey, look where I was, look where I am now, and really be thankful for that. I mean, I, I get up every day with, with, a, with a spring in my step. I get up very passionate about what I do, and it's a job that's never done, but you do have to stay grounded and, and grateful in what you've achieved. I know that sounds cliche, but I think it's very, very important. Yeah, fantastic. I've got a philosophy that when you set a goal and you achieve that goal, 
you end up embodying everything that that means to you. So you've achieved the, the goal of having a gym. You've got, sounds like you got the Rolls Royce of everything there. It sounds fantastic. Like you've achieved it. What are you going to do to step off into the next thing? Are you going to use that as a stepping off point? Or are you going to stay here and consolidate for a little while? Or what, what's next? Yeah, look, great question. One of the things I've really learned about business is to be super deliberate in what you do. My, my natural instinct is, is to be quite impulsive. And I've, I've tripped myself up a few times being impulsive and, and acting on stuff in the moment. Now, there's obviously a time for quick, uh, taking action quickly and there's obviously a time for, for doing stuff on gut instinct, but learning about yourself is also very important. And I know that's one of my weaknesses. And what I'm doing at the moment really is just is making this one standalone gym everything it can be. Everything it can be. I, I very nearly went and opened a second one very early on in the piece. And, and I caught myself out. I was like, oh, hold on. You're doing that thing you do. You're tempting, doing that right? thing. Tempting. It's, it's very tempting. And when, when one of your driving needs is growth, you can sometimes step off before you should. So, yeah, one of, one of my business mentors talks about stacking cash, not problems. And he talks about how until you've mastered all your systems and really tied them down, you shouldn't be doing anything except building profit and building cash reserves. Because as soon as you compound and you open a second location or third location where you do that next thing, all those problems that you haven't necessarily had time to see start to come out, not only come out, in one location, but in a second location. So, yeah, look, for me, I, I've set myself about three months ago, I set myself a rule that I wasn't allowed to do anything extra for 12 months. <laughs> so I'm just going to play out that 12 months. And if at the end of the 12 months, I still want to go in the same direction, I'll do that. Because there's a lot of energy that goes into your pursuits. And, I mean, I'm sure you're probably the same as me. Over the years, I've probably started 20 or 30 different business ideas yeah and whilst i've got this one thing that i'm really good at and i know inside out i've put a lot of energy into making this work and i just think wow imagine if i hadn't have put all that energy and emotional effort into starting all those other things and often they they weren't things that i had an aptitude for or knowledge in they were just things that were giving me validation to an extent i was like yeah i'm gonna start this thing and you know, it's a great idea. I knew nothing about it, you know. <laughs> so being deliberate and, and really thoughtful about what you do is important. A shiny new toy syndrome is a common thing amongst entrepreneurs. And I think that personal discipline that you were talking about right at the start there is kind of matured a little bit for you to stop you from those shiny new toys. You mentioned that you've got business mentors. Who are the people that influence you in business and in life? Yeah, okay, so I've worked with a whole heap of uh, business mentors and, and I make it a practice to always have a mentor or some sort of course or training that I'm doing for business. As far as mentors go, hmm, probably more than anything, just the reading I've done. Dan Kennedy was the first genre that I really got into. Uh, Tony Robbins is amazing. I, I've done a lot of his stuff. Keith Cunningham is another guy who I've read a lot from and, and he's a I suppose a strategic accountant these days and he's actually a guy that Richard Branson schedules his whole year around so Branson goes and sees Keith Cunningham four times a year 
<laughs> Chief, quick backstory on him. He made $200 million or something in the 90s uh, with cable TV, lost it all, and then rebuilt himself after that. But he's written some fantastic books on, on business. But, yeah, look, I, I make a point of always doing a business course or a marketing course and always doing business reading every single day. Yeah, very nice, mate. If you're not learning, you're dying. Absolutely. That's what right. What would you say to a 17-year-old about to leave high school? They're about to park up year 12 and move out into the big, wide, open world. What would you say about career choices and life, given what you've been through and the experiences you've had? Yeah, I'd say that school matters far less than what you may think. And I'm loath to say that because I've got a nearly 15-year-old boy, my son Isaac, he's nearly 15 and, and he's much the same as I was at school and, and spends more time running rings around teachers than doing work. So I've got to be careful. I don't want to encourage him too much to not focus at school, but school really just matters so little. And more than ever, university matters so little. Once upon a time, going to uni was a guarantee of, of a well-paid career, but that seems to be less and less so. What I would say to any 17-year-old is first do something which gets you some life experience, which builds resilience that maybe helps you find what your thing is because at 17, you don't know. I promise you of that. I see a lot of 17, 18-year-olds now wanting to go straight into the fitness industry and for the most part, I, I'm not into that. I think you need some more life experience before you work in this industry. But, yeah, I think doing some time in the military or doing time travelling or doing some hard manual physical labour is good. And, you know, that rite of passage of going out and, and seeing the world, I think, is very important because you're not going to know what your thing is until you're in your 20s. There's that old school part of you coming out, that physical labour right. rite of passage. I think young people, I deliberately ask that question. It's a bit self-serving, actually, because my son's 17 and about to leave school as well. And, you know, kids don't listen to their parents. I'm going to say, hey, listen to Dan. He's saying some really cool stuff. So you're right on point there for me and my son. So thank you for that. That's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Tell me, mate, what are your daily non-negotiables? Daily non-negotiables, exercise, absolute non-negotiable. Yeah, time with my family. So I, I take my son to the bus stop every day. That's our thing. We drive to the bus stop. We talk about different stuff. Just have that time together. I also, I'm a big believer in, in setting that routine for him as well. So my son, he's lived with me full time since just before his 10th birthday. He lived with his mum before that. I really like the Arnold Schwarzenegger book, Total Recall. He talked about the routines and the importance of routines that his dad taught him. So Isaac and I, we do, we do boxing every night. I, I do pad work for him. He's a big gamer, so he has to do five minutes of work on a trampoline, 50 push-ups, and then 15 minutes of boxing every night. So just laying down those routines with him, driving him to school. My wife and I have, have stuff we do every evening, but... Beyond that, mate, it's really just focusing my attention on the most important things in my business. It's exercising every single day. Small daily disciplines, man. There's nothing nothing overly profound there. Nice, nice. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the Go All In podcast and sharing your story, mate. You were dropping value bomb after value bomb there, man. I don't think you realize, but that was fantastic. Thank you so much for bringing that to the audience. If people want to find out more about you, where can they find out some more info and connect with you? Best places would be check out probably my YouTube channel now. I'm doing less and less on Facebook, but uh, GTT Performance Center on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, or even just add me as a, a friend on Facebook. 
look, I don't put a lot of stuff online, but probably going to step that up a little bit over the next few months anyway, just to give people a bit more of an insight into what it is we do. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'll make sure all of those links are included in the show notes. If you haven't already subscribed to the Go All In podcast, please head over to your favorite podcasting app and hit that subscribe button. And we love it when you leave us a review, good or bad. If it's bad, that's okay. We'd love to improve as well. But if you can leave us a good review, that'd be awesome. We'd love to hear from you. Well, that's it for this show. Thanks again, Dan, for coming on, mate. We really appreciate it. And we look forward again to seeing you soon. Bye for now.